0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the series, Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. For many in the modern world, conceiving of a reality that allows for spirits, angels, demons, and the devil is no simple undertaking. By and large, we do not share the worldview of Jesus and the authors of the Bible, at least not by default. Understanding the supernatural worldview is something we must learn in order to put into practice. our worldview, our default worldview, is non-supernatural. And, and really, why wouldn't it be? You are in a state of general operation that recognizes that which you can see, hear, touch, taste, and smell. And yet here at City, we're constantly arguing that in order to follow Jesus, one must adopt Jesus' worldview. And this worldview includes the recognition, full belief in, and even engagement with a mostly unseen realm. And you can call that the supernatural realm, if you like, or maybe the spiritual realm, whatever. But for weeks now, we've been discussing this profound and unavoidable bearing that this realm, um, this often overlooked reality, has on our apprenticeship to Jesus, on our lives, and even our very souls. And it's more than just an unseen reality, it is often a fight. So consequently, this is a conversation in need of space and nuance. So this is about more than just information. This is about training oneself to understand a reality in in a way that does not come naturally, at least not to us Westerners. In other parts of the world, a supernatural worldview is kind of a given. But here, for us, one must choose to believe and then deliberately accept a supernatural worldview again and again and again. The disciples of Jesus that that you and I are, I hope, must concede that Jesus and the authors of scripture can see something that we often overlook. And that not only that, but it's a truly important aspect of understanding and operating in Jesus' worldview and his lifestyle. In other words, you have to learn how to adopt this worldview. Remember, Jesus was God, sure, but he was also completely human. The authors of scripture were inspired by God's spirit, sure, but they were also human. That to say, struggling with belief in and understanding of a mostly invisible reality is nothing to beat yourself up about not any more than something like the fact that fasting doesn't come naturally for many of us, that we have to learn how to do that and, and to understand why. Of course, it doesn't come naturally. We, we actually lack categories for this type of thing. The language becomes clumsy, and, and when we find it, there's usually baggage there. But, and please listen, belief in the spiritual realm is inseparable from discipleship to Jesus. In order to think like Jesus one must accept the reality of a spiritual realm. If we want to apprentice Jesus, it's crucial that we learn how to adopt his worldview. Now, as always, we'll get there by way of the scriptures. so open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. You guys good? You feeling all right? Wow, a woo from Lexi. Thanks. Thanks for that vote of confidence. Well, all right, what we're going to do is read the very first words in all of the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis 1, verse 1. It's a familiar one, and it goes like this. "'In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth.'" Now, this is, for many of you, a familiar story, like I said, but there may be something here that news, that's news to you. So let's start with the English word God, right there in your translation, capital G, lowercase o, lowercase d. The Hebrew word in this particular case is Elohim, and it carries with it a very different kind of meaning than our English word, capital G, lowercase o, lowercase d. And that's fine, there's no reason to panic about that. The classic Jewish and Christian acknowledgement of the Scriptures is that God has chosen to reveal Himself through human authors, and they, in turn, happened to write a very long time ago, inspired by God's Spirit, but they wrote in Hebrew and in Aramaic and in Greek. And that means that these words have connective meanings and webs of context and weight that don't translate at least not directly into another language not all the time and it actually works the other way as well in fact uh here's a helpful way of understanding it fun piece of trivia mostly unknown to american moviegoers is that when america's american studios release films with titles Based on decidedly American ideas or images or idioms, when they get released in other countries, those countries struggle to rename them in a way that will connect with their own locale. So, take Pixar's Inside Out, for example, the film screening uh, next or this Saturday for the um, family movie night. In China, the movie is called The Great Team Inside the Head. <laughs> Uh, Russia went with the title Jigsaw, for some reason, and Vietnam chose The Puzzle Emotions. Um, And Thailand actually retitled the movie Fantastic Emotional Turmoil, (laughs) (laughs) which is not inaccurate, I guess. Uh, In China, the Ghostbusters reboot that came out a year or two ago was given the title Superpower Dare Die Team. That's, that's not made up. That's actually what it's called in China. Well, if it had been released, it actually got banned at the last second. Um, here's my personal favorite, uh, Free Willy. You guys remember that 93 movie? It's Northwest, a kid in an orca. In China, it's called A Very Powerful Whale Runs to Heaven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's so good. <laughs> All right, so what I'm getting at <laughs> is that your translations, they're not junk. It's not like that, you know, uh, it's just that some Hebrew words, when translated, don't bring their complex baggage with them, or else if they do, they, they take on new English baggage instead, um, and Elohim is a great example. It's the third Hebrew word in the whole Hebrew scriptures, and it's not actually a name at all. It's more like a title or an adjective. Um, the very first words in the Hebrew scriptures are Eroshit, bara Elohim. Uh, which is in the beginning God created, or in other words, in the beginning Elohim. And what the biblical authors have in mind when they write Elohim is not the same thing as our English word G O D or capital G O D. Now, if you tally up the some 2,700 plus times the word Elohim is used in scriptures, they actually get applied to all sorts Of different beings. One of those beings is the one we think of when we say God with a capital G. Sometimes the biblical authors will call this particular being the Elohim to specify, and he does have a proper name, but he's not the only Elohim. He's the chief Elohim, Uh, he's the one and only creator Elohim who made all the other Elohim, but there are other Elohim. There is the Elohim of Egypt, for example, with whom God does battle in the Exodus story. In chapter 12, verse 12, you you get this interesting verse where God says, I will bring judgment on all the gods or Elohim of Egypt. I am Yahweh. In 1 Kings, uh, you get this uh, interesting story where um, there's a, a long list of specific Elohim. It goes something like this. I will do this because, this is God talking, I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth the goddess, or Elohim, of the Sidonians, Chemosh the god, or Elohim, of the Moabites, and Molech the god, Elohim, of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. And again, these are just a few examples. There are more than 2,700 plus uses of Elohim in the Bible. And the ones I've just read are all obviously contextually bad Elohim. In the Bible, not all Elohim are against the creator Elohim. There are other Elohim who are actually kind of on God's team. They're almost like a staff to the chief Elohim. And they are real creatures that God utilizes in governing the cosmos. And get this. Even the invisible presence of a deceased person who has yet to be resurrected, uh, what in popular language might be described as like their spirit, is referred to in the scriptures as an Elohim. There's an utterly bizarre story in 1 Samuel in which this character called Saul is distressed because he can't hear from God. So he gets desperate and he visits a medium, which is someone who can consult with spirits. And he says this, and I quote, consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. Then the woman, the medium, asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. Does anyone want to guess what that Hebrew word is? Elohim. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not a trick. It actually is Samuel. Look at what happens. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, which is terrifying to me. (laughs) And then Saul knew it was Samuel and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? So, with just a small handful of examples, you can see that the Bible uses the word Elohim to describe the creator God, to describe other gods with a lowercase g, and even the spiritual essence of dead people that have yet to be resurrected. So, what the heck does this word mean exactly, and why does it matter? Listen, one way of summarizing this term is like this. An Elohim is an inhabitant of the spiritual realm. Now, when you hear spiritual realm, don't just think non-physical realm. In the Bible, the physical world and the spiritual world are two distinct but overlapping realities, meaning beings in the spiritual realm can interact with and even manifest within the physical realm from time to time and vice versa. People and beings in the physical realm can interact with and manifest within the spiritual realm. And in that realm, there are many Elohim. There's only one chief Elohim, the creator of everything, including the other Elohim. But there are many Elohim. Now, maybe you're thinking... Yeah, but doesn't the Bible talk about like false gods and how the other gods aren't real and about idols and all that stuff? And yeah, it's true, it does. But listen, by this, the biblical authors do not mean that false gods with a lowercase g are non-entities. Meaning, so Paul, for instance, warns the Corinthians not to eat in the temples of other Elohim. And it's not because they're a figment of your imagination and don't actually exist. It's because they do exist, and that's a dangerous thing to mess with. In fact, even idols, which are not alive at all, just to clarify, their statues or carvings or what have you, they can act in the scriptures as like a representation or even like an intermediary of a real living being. So false gods are not false in that they don't exist. They are false in the sense that they are inferior to and truly beneath the most high God, Yahweh, so the scriptures will say things like there is no Elohim beside the Elohim, Yahweh, and that's not saying that these other entities don't exist. It's saying there is no parallel to the true one creator God. It's almost akin to like our American expressions like I am the one and only when you're talking about something that you're good at. You're not saying that you're the one and only writer, or basketball player, or barista in the world. You're saying that there is no parallel to you. Hopefully you don't say that at all, but people do. Um, but listen to this. This is important. The point is, is that there is a universe populated with primarily spiritual beings, in much the same way as there is a universe populated with primarily physical beings, and those two dimensions overlap. Now, within this spiritual realm, there exists something mentioned throughout the Old Testament called the Divine Council. And the thing you have to remember uh, always in understanding the scriptures is that it does not work the way that we as kind of modern Westerners imagine a story ought to work. So the Bible begins with all sorts of references and puzzles and ambiguity that can only be resolved by what comes later (laughs) in the Bible. So the scriptures are what Bible scholars call meditation literature, meaning it's designed for a lifetime of reading and rereading and reading and rereading. It is not a traditional linear narrative from start to finish, though it does tell a story. In fact, the Bible itself, Psalm 1 is an excellent example. If you know it, you know, blessed is the one who meditates on God's law day and night. Um, the Bible itself just comes out and says that it's designed to appreciate upon subsequent readings. It does not give up all its secrets in a single sitting. And it's not because God is like cryptic and weird and he's mean spirited, he's deliberately confusing. It's because he is inviting you to keep reading and to keep understanding him more and more all the time. Now, we sometimes want the Bible to just give us a clear narrative. You know, we want a clear instruction on things like the origin of the spiritual realm. Wouldn't that be helpful? Um, we want to understand how it works in a plain uh, one, two, three kind of way. We want to understand how we work in and within it but it doesn't really do that. The Bible asks you to keep reading and rereading, and this brings us back to this idea of the divine counsel. So let's look at Genesis 1 again, if you're still there. The Bible opens with this fascinating story. God's in this creative endeavor of crafting the cosmos, and the story goes on, and then you arrive at your first really interesting clue. Look at Genesis 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Um, So there's this strange line in which God himself says, let us create mankind in our image. And you won't be able to make sense of this line until you read further into the scriptures and then read them again. This is what we later learn is something called the divine counsel, or the Council of Elohim. Look at this reference from Psalm 82 that says, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods, or Elohim. Or this one from Psalm 89. The heavens praise your wonders, Yahweh, your faithfulness too. In the assembly of the holy ones, for who in the skies above can compare with Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, the council of Elohim, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. So in the very beginning of the story, uh, this is this is who the scholar, Bible scholars argue is the us. That we read about on page one of the Bible, the Divine Council, the Council of Elohim. Now, if you're wondering when did this "us" get there, uh, there's actually a clue in the creation story. If you know the story, before people get dreamed up, in this ancient poetic narrative kind of thing going on, God creates lots of things: day and night, water and sky, land, plants, and then God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. But get this, um, the words sun and moon are actually never used. It's just the Hebrew word for lamps. So God creates the heavenly lamps. There's a bigger one and a lesser one, and we render that as the sun and the moon. And then he creates the stars. Now, what you may not know is that every single mention of stars in the Hebrew Bible refers to them as creatures. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the, Bible, the biblical authors didn't know or didn't understand that or didn't believe that they weren't actually really just a big ball of gas burning in space. It is that. A star is a big ball as far as we can tell. But even that scientific reality in Scripture is a profound symbol of an often unseen reality. And that unseen reality is that there are powerful beings in the celestial realm as well even the stars are there in some sense to remind us of another cosmic reality in the heavens hebrew scholar and uh, portland native uh, of the who helped founded the bible project if you know tim mackey says it this way it's a different conception of the world but the theological idea is the same it's so easy to translate into a modern conception of the universe the sun is a ball of gas that we are rotating around But for someone who believes in a creator, the sun itself is a sign and symbol of a greater source of beauty and power. So the idea of the stars as symbols for actual spiritual beings sounds kooky at first, I get that, but it's actually not that different than the way that we as disciples of Jesus understand the beauty and the complexity of the universe all around us. Yes, there are scientific realities there and they're often totally true, but even those point to an incredible and just as real truth behind it all. So in the story, God commissions these created beings, the Elohim, to rule over the often unseen realm. And then God says to them, let us make mankind in our image to rule over the land or the earth, the world, the physical realm. Genesis 1 presents an image of a celestial realm or a spiritual realm. Yahweh is above it all. He rules over all of it. And beneath Yahweh are two delegated authorities, The celestial rulers and the terrestrial rulers, meaning humanity is in one realm and spiritual entities are in another realm. And this other realm, the spiritual place, is a heavenly space. Populated with spiritual beings. Above them is the one true creator God who presides over everything. And this, the relationship between the one true Creator God and the spiritual beings below him is the divine council. But the Bible actually has more to say about that council and how it functions, and it's actually pretty surprising. It's more than just this ancient supernatural imagery. In first Kings, the prophet Micaiah has this vision of this scene, this bizarre scene, and he describes it thusly. Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. (laughs) Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before Yahweh and said, I will entice him. By what means? Yahweh asked. (laughs) And the story goes on. It's actually super fascinating. Read it on your own time. Now... As usual, I realize there's a ton there, and this story is a particularly strange one. We'll get into more about the way that God collaborates with spiritual beings later on in the series. Um, but what I want you to see in this particular spa- or passage and for this evening is this, you have in the story Yahweh, he has an end in mind, it's clear enough, and he's coming to a decision about how to participate in a human affair and to get there, he's inviting and considering the input of these other spiritual beings and in the story he actually accepts one of their suggestions. Someone walks up and says, I can do this and he's like, oh yeah, tell me more about that and then if you read the story, that's how it goes out. So here's what we're getting at and why it's so important. From the very outset of the Bible, God's design and intent is to share his universe with other creatures. To do that, he orchestrates the functionality of the universe in such a way that his own authority, his rule over the universe, is mediated through these other beings both spiritual and physical, celestial and terrestrial, human beings and angelic beings or spiritual beings or angels or demons or whatever you want to call them. In the same way that God created humans for collaborative relationship in moving the world forward, he also created Elohim for collaborative relationship in the spiritual realm. God chooses to wire creation, uh, in Tim Mackie's words, for a symphony of unified wills, meaning when it works, These wills submit to one another and to God in loving collaboration and it is a glorious and beautiful harmony, like a symphony. But in the story, as you probably already know, there is also discord. Which is why we get a talking snake on page three of the bible in hebrew the word for this being the talking snake is nechash. it's actually the same word used to describe a sorcerer it's also a word connected to the hebrew term for like shiny or bronze because hebrew authors actually love to utilize words for their connections even in like a pun like sense so the idea is that this thing whatever it is is like this enticing shiny trickster and this being in the story, sets out to convince God's human collaborators, the very first ones, that they've been given a bad deal. He's like, oh, you shouldn't be content with these limitations that Yahweh has imposed on you. And so, get this, in the story, he actually says to them, you can become Elohim. So we, the readers, are at this point in the story thinking, what is this thing? <laughs> what, what, I thought this garden was all good all the time. Why is there a talking snake in it? Why is it wanting to trick human beings into clearly overstepping the boundaries that God has established? It seems like this thing has already overstepped its own boundaries. And that's your first clue. Something has already gone wrong with this thing prior to this in the story. There's no, this is not an ordinary talking snake. For one, snakes don't talk. Uh, in the ordinary sense, and and the writers of the Bible knew this. Um, So page one of the Bible, you've got celestial rulers and terrestrial rulers, and both are God's partners in spreading beauty and goodness throughout the, chaos, the, the cosmos and leading it well. But then we see that there has been rebellion in the celestial realm already, apparently, and it in turn leads to rebellion in the terrestrial realm. One contaminates the other. Both God's spiritual and human partners are in rebellion against God himself. And then if you read on, the very next story is about a guy called Cain, if you know. And in this, the story says that there's a corrupting evil, the one that was previously personified in a talking snake. Now it's inside Cain himself. Cain is also tempted by a beast, something that's hell-bent on destruction. But now the beast is called sin, and it's inside Cain. So in the Bible story, you have evil out there, and you have evil in here. Evil without, evil within. And the story goes on. One of Cain's descendants actually brags about becoming an even more prolific murderer than Cain, who's a murderer in the story, spoiler alert. And out of this uh, lineage of evil comes this great city of Babylon, which then becomes this symbol of ongoing systemic evil in the scriptures. So, the idea is that the Bible is communicating over and over again this complex unfolding narrative that the world is broken. It's been out of shape, it's warped, and it's not just because human beings are screw ups. There is a complicated interconnectedness of human and spiritual rebellion that permeates individuals and systems and even entire cultures and movements. And this has to do with human wills, yes, but not human wills only. There is a two-tiered and actually mirrored storyline established from the outside of the Bible that carries on all the way through to the end. And the Bible doesn't use that reality of uh, Elohim and the spiritual realm to kind of get humanity off the hook, but it does teach that we are led astray and that we willingly collaborate with a dark animating power of evil in the spiritual realm. And of course, as we've already said, we're introduced to that rebellion in the spiritual realm via this character of a talking snake. Now, we've actually already said earlier in the series that the way the Bible presents a portrait of this character, and really of spiritual evil itself is through a succession of accumulating stories and images that slowly, one tile at a time, begin to present a portrait of this character called the devil. It begins with the snake, and in subsequent stories, evil humans become agents of the serpent, which is, of course, a point that Jesus makes when he takes the religious leaders to task in John 8, if you remember earlier in the stories, and he calls them seeds of the serpent, what he's getting at is that there are two lineages, and it's not a genetic lineages; it's more like a spiritual kind of lineages, uh, lineage. And this entity called the evil one has his own collaborative spiritual beings that rebel and join him in rebellion. Other Elohim, later on the Bible calls them powers in the New Testament, principalities. uh, The word that you're probably most familiar with in our everyday vernacular is demons. And they participate both in an individual and corporate level in this ongoing spiritual conflict which results in the broken world that you and I know so well. But of course in Genesis 3, If you know the story, there's another human lineage. God promises, even all the way back then in Genesis 3, that someone specific will come, a son of Eve, someone who will not succumb to the enticing pool of spiritual evil. And not only that, but he will somehow overcome and destroy the evil one, and in doing so, rescue all those who have been led astray by his lies. So now, I want you to wrap your minds around this. I realize this is all dense stuff, but stay with me for just a few more minutes. Try to wrap your mind around all of uh, this idea. For all of church history, Jesus of Nazareth has been understood as someone who is completely human, yes, but he was also completely God. And there's something here to do with spiritual warfare that we often miss. The one who comes to defeat evil is not just a human because he did not come to deal with human evil only. Jesus is a merging of both the divine and human realms together that he might address and overcome human and spiritual evil. In other words, Jesus is so incredible that he came to rescue humanity by being a human and to destroy the evil gods by being God himself. So Jesus is there. He's a Jew in the first century. He's under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And yet his ultimate battle is not with these people or their systems of government or evil. No, in the language of 1 John, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. Over and against the modern post-enlightenment understanding of evil, Jesus believed that evil does not exist merely because people are uneducated or desperate or mentally ill. That factors in, yes, but there's more. There's another powerful dimension of reality that is difficult for you and I to see, but that Jesus understood full well. So in the story, Jesus doesn't gather up an army, he doesn't form an insurgent, he doesn't go out protesting the Roman Empire, there's no hashtags or anything like that, he just goes from village to village, proclaiming the kingdom of God, healing the sick, casting out evil spirits, because all those things are interconnected. Jesus understands all of his activity, what we often call his ministry, as engagement with and battle within the spiritual realm and the physical realm. So in Luke's gospel, some of uh, Jesus' disciples say this interesting thing to him when they're surprised by what they can do. Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus replied, I saw, or actually I see, Satan falling like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Jesus understands himself to be the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3, all the way back in the beginning of the story, who has arrived to finally deal with the snake and cut evil off at the source. Now, we mostly call that snake today uh, Satan, which, as we said a couple of weeks ago, actually comes from the Hebrew term Hasatan. And it isn't a name, it's more like a title, and it means the accuser or the adversary or the opponent. And interestingly, in the Bible, this creature actually plays this specific role in some kind of formal sense within the divine council. You see this in the book of Job, if you know the story, in the book of Zechariah, there's the council; they're all together talking like we read a second ago, offering up ideas and commentaries, and in will step Hasatan, the accuser. Even in the story of Jesus being tempted in the desert, the creature shows up as an accuser the opponent, the adversary. And that story of Jesus being tempted in the desert is a retelling of the Garden of Eden story. Here's the snake all over again with a powerful and deceptive set of ideas, and Jesus succeeds where the proto-humans failed. No, that's not true. That's a lie. As strange and as otherworldly as it seems to you and I, Jesus and the biblical authors take all of this very seriously. So, please listen, the point is that this dynamic way of seeing and understanding the universe and the problems in it, this is the worldview of Jesus and of the authors of Scripture. There is evil in the spiritual realm, and it is, in some sense, led by an entity called the devil. Or Hasatan, the Satan, the the accuser, the opponent. This is not a fairy tale. It's not just a primitive understanding of the cosmos to be excused away. This is actually the worldview of Jesus of Nazareth. There is more to the brokenness of your soul and to your world than you can see with the naked eye. Now, before we end tonight, let me ask an obvious question. Why go on about this? Why go on about this? Why unpack so many different dimensions of this from the scriptures and this teaching series and in the practices that we're still doing right now? And the reason is this, please listen. This understanding of reality does not come naturally for us. We have to learn to understand reality this way. Because we're taught by the world around us, even by our own experience, that yes, the world may be bent out of shape, and egregiously so, but we know why. It's because of your upbringing, your family of origin, generational stuff. It's because of misinformation or desperation. It's because people lack awareness or education. It's because of mental illness and misunderstanding. And I'm not saying that those are not very real things and not very real factors in the equation. They are, but that alone misses the point. That in the battle against evil, your enemy is not actually human at all, but the powers of darkness in the spiritual realm. These are realities that are difficult to see, sometimes altogether invisible, but not always, and yet still difficult to see. When I read the news or when I look to pop culture or read a new novel or hear a new song or listen to a stand up comedian or a cultural commentator, The dialogue around evil right now is ubiquitous. Everyone has something to say about what's wrong with the world, and for good reason. Um, A huge swath of the population is convinced of the pure evil, for example, of an entire political party and the other the same but in reverse, and both of them understand themselves to be the true agents of righteousness, (laughs) Um, though to their opponents they are Satan incarnate, and people are angry, and in some cases, they're terrified. Uh, I noticed when I was writing this teaching that two new movies that I saw in the last month Both mentioned as a plot device, the idea that the world may be rendered uninhabitable within two generations via environmental degradation. And I'm not saying that's necessarily true or untrue. I'm just saying that our culture is marked by a certain kind of panic and outrage and and concern for what's going on in the world. And it isn't new. It certainly isn't unique to human history, but it is the world that you and I live in the one that we work in together the where we where our relationships are where we will raise our children where we practice the way of jesus together so you can look to politicians for your evil and it'll be an easy thing to find it there you can blame an entire gender or an entire race or a system or an institution and there may indeed be evil there but where did it come from and what animates and compels that evil for jesus The enemy is ultimately not flesh and blood at all, but a sinister and mostly unseen reality, both out there in the universe, yes, but it's also in here, in us. The talking snake story, it seems fanciful, I know, but this is a story about a temptation that we actually know all too well, that we might cast aside what God says is best for us and for the world in order to define for ourselves what is best, transcend any limits placed on us by God or by anyone else, even at the expense of other people, that we might somehow find happiness. This is actually what spiritual warfare is all about. It's not just exorcisms and things that go bump in the night. Tim Mackey describes spiritual warfare this way. I love this. It is the temptation to do what is best for me and to redefine good and evil for my own convenience, comfort, and benefit At the expense of the people around me. The fight, the spirit of spiritual warfare, the temptation to do what is best for me and to redefine good and evil for my own convenience, comfort, and benefit at the expense of the people around me. You know this temptation. You are in this battle, whether you want to be or not, in your relationships, your families, with your spouse, your children, your friends, your community, your co-workers, your boss. And that is spiritual warfare. The temptation to define what is best over and against the teachings of Jesus and the scriptures for myself, regardless of the effect that it has on me and the long term, the people around me, the world. And when we fail in this battle, we create stories in our own lives, stories in our families, stories in our culture, really. And we set new normals in which decades after the fact, what was inconceivable two generations prior is now not only complete normalcy, but it has been redefined as good. And this plays out in ways big and small in lies we believe that warp our own identity and our relationships, yes. That's an easy kind of go-to thing. We've been working through that in the practices, but there's more than that. It's also in things like our shopping decisions. When clothes made by slaves and food that abuses God's creation is more convenient and makes us more happy and is therefore good, not evil. When social media that purports a false self, the perfect family, perfect parents, perfect vacations and one-liners and homes, because that will make us happy and is therefore good, not evil. Or when we keep our funds and our things for ourselves rather than sacrificing our excess for the poor or for the people in our lives, our community, for justice work, for the church. Because more money and more stuff will make us happy and is therefore good, not evil. Or when we're outraged with what we see on the news and we choose to reduce other humans made in God's image to their mistakes and their political preferences rather than loving our enemies as Jesus commanded. Because black and white is easier, it's more comfortable, it fits into our camps, and therefore it's good, not evil. And that is what this practice is all about. Yes, there is a validity to some of the more extreme instances of spiritual warfare, exorcism, scary stuff, all that, but primarily the battle is the same as it was in Genesis 1. It's the temptation to do what is best for me, to redefine good and evil for my own convenience, comfort, and benefit at the expense of people around me. When you give in to this temptation, you are there in the garden with the snake all over again. Every day of your life, there is a battle of ideas. So choose a side. With every single moment, in every single decision, choose a side. The way that you talk, the way that you relate to other people, the way that you arrange your calendar, the way you work, the way that you rest, the way that you play, the way that you spend your money. The things that you buy, the things that you don't buy, the way that you eat, the things that you watch or listen to or turn over in your head at length. In all of it, every day, every season of life, there is a battle for the truth. And the invitation of Jesus is the same as God's in the beginning of the story. God says, please believe me when I say I want what is best for you. This is not a trick. I'm not cruel or uncaring or unfeeling. I am not a capricious or arbitrary rulemonger. God says in his own language, I am compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, forgiving, abounding in love and faithfulness. I want what is best for you. And God is still saying, please, please believe that I know what is best even more than you do. And we actually, this is not a far-fetched concept. We say this to small children all the time, and we mean it, and there's truth there. It's not a concept that's alien to us at all. This series, this practice is about building and reinforcing our understanding of a world we cannot see all the time, but it is every bit as real as the world we can see all the time. Because you need to understand that these decisions you faced are are not just simple, innocuous little moments in which you buy something or plan something or post something or say something and on down the list. And I don't say any of that to make your life seem unmanageable or overwhelming. This is about learning to see something that is often difficult to see so that you can be set free. In the language of Jesus himself, when you see the truth, the truth will set you free. And part of that truth in the worldview of the scriptures and of Jesus himself is that there are other entities in the spiritual realm, more than just you and I. And chances are you have and perhaps are still living in submission to some of them. And they do not love you. And they do not want what is best for you. And as we walk the road of discipleship together, let us learn to see what is often unseen together, to trust in the one who does truly care for us, over and against the other voices, inside and outside of ourselves, competing for our desires and our happiness and our understanding of the world. And when we learn to trust, we will embrace a truth that will truly set us free. Let's pray together and invite God's Spirit to speak over us. Thanks for listening to Van City. There are more teachings and available resources at vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/giving.